We are in a new series called uh, Restored. I am so excited for this series because it gets to focus in, zoom in on my favorite topic, Jesus. If you can't tell that I'm obsessed with Jesus, we've got a Jesus light over here, and it's magic. Watch, it'll turn on when I snap my fingers. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, I did this too fast. Sorry. Way to go, tech guys. We didn't plan that at all. I just wanted to try it. Uh, The chapel's sign out front. You know, I I didn't want to say that this is a chapel at Fishhawk and have my name down there because I think my name is foolishness, and it's going to be long gone 100 years from now. So I wanted it to be the chapel all about Jesus. Everything you see here is all about Jesus. But one of the questions that I often get is, why do you talk about Jesus so much? Why does it matter? Why, why does he matter? He's only in the New Testament. And I've heard this time and time again. So this series, we are going to walk from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. And I'm going to show you, we're going to look at glimpses of Jesus in the story of God in such a way that we can begin to find freedom and restoration and hope from the things that, that hit our lives. And here's the fun thing about church. Every one of us walks in these doors on Sunday with some sort of expectation. Usually we bring hope in. We're hoping for a better marriage. We're hoping to be inspired. We're hoping to connect with God. We have all of these hopes. We're hoping that the people in Sunday school can work miracles with our heathen children. We're hoping. And then we ideally will leave with faith. Faith that God has given us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ and that when we get Jesus at the center, everything else begins to line up. So we're going to pray. We're going to put the football to the side. Um, And before I pray, uh, we're just going to do this. I feel like it's appropriate. It's 9-11 today. Today it's been 15 years since that happened. And and today I still have friends whose lives have been impacted forever from from that incident, from that terrorist attack. So I'm going to give us about 30 seconds, and I would just encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you pray, pray for the families that are still here, still impacted, the policemen, the firemen that are still suffering with injuries, the the people who lost friends and family in those. So we're going to take 30 seconds of silence to honor the 9-11 victims, and then I will pray us into the message. Father, we lift up the families who lost loved ones in the 9-11 attacks. God, we thank you for the men and women who sacrificially gave their lives, who ran toward the towers when they were falling to save others, to serve their city. Thank you. God, be with their families and friends who who are thinking about their loss today. And now, Lord... um, As we come to Genesis, as we come to kick off this series, I ask that you would send your spirit into this place. Apart from you, we can do nothing and know nothing. God, make me a preacher that's single-minded. May Jesus be lifted up today. May we all behold him and see him for who he is. And see how much he loves us. May this series change lives. Change families. Restore marriages. In Christ's name, all God's kids said. Amen. Okay, the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books. How many books? 
Okay, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the majority of the Bible. It's also the part of the Bible that most people, even within church, tend not to read. We tend to do uh, very good with Genesis because we do Bible reading plans. And then after about February 14th, that's my like, estimation of when everyone fails their New Year's resolutions. That's when you quit going to the gym. That's when your Bible reading plan starts to go every other day. So, so we stop Genesis, maybe Exodus, and then we start to trail off. Now, 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The New Testament, the main character that you hear about, his name is Jesus. I was going to say starts with a J, rhymes with Jesus, but you guys got it. You're, you're brilliant. Jesus is the central figure, not only of the New Testament, but of the whole Bible. And I think this is something that is often lost in our modern day of teaching. We think that the Old Testament is about an old, grumpy, angry God. And then the New Testament is about the happy, loving God that makes all the angry stuff that was in the Old Testament seem okay. And that's just not what the Bible is about. Jesus himself wanted to teach us that that is not what the Bible's about. So we're gonna, I'm going to run through a few scriptures here. First one is in John 5.39. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So when Jesus said this, they only had what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus told the religious leaders, you look through your scriptures because you think that you can find life in them, but I am the only way you will find life, and I am right in front of you. And then he goes on uh, in another passage. After Jesus raises from the dead, he goes on a stroll with two guys on the road to Emmaus, and he He hid who he was. He hid his identity from these two people. And as they were walking along, it said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus went on a seven-mile walk with two guys after he had risen from the dead. And he just started pointing things out in the Bible. You remember that story about Moses? Remember the Passover lamb? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the lamb of God. That's Jesus. That's me. Do you remember David in the wilderness when he hit the rock? Water came out, I'm, I'm the rock that gives life, that's me. You remember the manna from heaven, that's me. You know the true king, that's me. And he walked all the way through the Old Testament showing that he was the primary goal, the target of what those passages were talking about. God has set us all up today to prepare our hearts to know Jesus and to find Jesus as our Savior, not just for the spiritual vertical sense, but our Savior for the million things we're looking at in life. For those of you who submitted the survey last week, thank you. I appreciate it. So we're going to do four categories today. You guys are going to repeat after me. So first is creation. Everyone say creation. Okay, everyone say fall. Everyone say redemption. And everyone say restoration. Okay, Everything in God's story is folded into these four categories. Creation we know, right? Adam and Eve made in the garden, naked, running around, eating mangoes, making babies, good times. Then the fall happened. There was only two good chapters in the Bible before everything went terrible, terrible, terribly wrong. Two good chapters. That's all we get. And then what happens? The sneaky serpent comes down. Eve takes the bite. Adam says, yes, ma'am, because who's already doing that thing where we just submit to the women because we know like, we're going to get in trouble if we don't? And then the fall Sin enters. Sin breaks down everything. It doesn't just break our relationship with God. God talks about how the plants will now be hard to cultivate. Sin breaks down DNA. The reason that things exist, like cancer and disease and thorns and mosquitoes, is because sin exists. This is why difficult things exist. Not your sin, but sin in the general sense. It's not that you sin and then God strikes you with something. That's not how he works, no matter what you were taught in Sunday school. 
It's that sin has broken this world. It's like a beautiful stained glass mural that had a baseball thrown through it and now it's shattered. And from that moment in Genesis 3, we have our first glimpse where God says to Adam, don't worry, your offspring will crush the serpent's head. It will bruise his heel, but he will crush its head. And we have another glimpse in there that we oftentimes miss. What did Adam and Eve walk out of the garden wearing? What were they wearing? Some of you said leaves, some said skins. Now, here's the thing. When they first sinned, they, they leafed up. We all do it. We all do the same. It's called sin management. We all do our sin management the same. It's easier to see in little kids. We do what I call the cover-hide blame tactic. That's what Adam and Eve did. They sin. First, they covered themselves up, sewed leaves on, and then they hid behind a bush, and then when they were found out, they blamed each other. If you've never seen this in action, you probably don't have children that are around the same age or are a human, right? Because we do it. We do it at work. Something goes wrong. We try to cover it up. And then if we can't cover it up enough, we'll just hide. Like if I pretend it didn't happen, I didn't answer that email, I didn't see that form. Or if it goes really bad, we just start pointing. That guy did it. It's the cover, hide, blame, sin management tactic. Adam and Eve cover, hide, blame. They covered themselves with fig leaves, but God wanted to send us a subtle message in the very beginning that they walked out with animal skins. Something had to die to cover their sins. Now, this is the first time in Scripture we're seeing this reality, that sin is so grave and sin is so, so uh, offensive toward God that something has to die to cover it. So, so an animal died. And that sets us up as we go on for this redemption road now. Now, here, here's the interesting thing. In creation, we have a God-given identity. We are connected to God, children of God, humans made in the image of God. And in the fall, that identity breaks. And then the rest of humanity, from the third chapter of Genesis until we get to the last two chapters of Revelation, it's the struggle of trying to figure out who we are and how to fix what's wrong in our world. Because sin distorted who we are. It distorted our creation identity. In the fall, it broke everything. I got to read those surveys that you guys filled out last week, and when I asked what is broken in your world, man, there's a lot of brokenness just in this world, like the Chapel family world. We had people that are going through massive illnesses. We have people that are harboring secrets and it's, it's crushing them, it's breaking them down. People that are just in need of a little bit more money to make it through the next month. When, when you ask people, hey, what's broken in your life or what do you complain about most, you get the list goes on. Politics, environmental stuff. By the way, if you're wondering what happened to my voice, it's probably because I went and swam over in the beach right after St. Pete dumped 85 million gallons of raw sewage into the water. So I think that's what's going on. That's why I sound so manly. I might swim in the sewage every other week just so I can keep this. Now, now here's, here's what happens, though. In our world, we have an identity. We've walked away from our creation identity, but in all of our worlds, we have a fall. We have something that's wrong in our life. And all of us are here today to figure out some measure of relief from the, the miniature hell that is our life, whether it's something going on inside of us, some doubts, some concerns, some fears of eternal destiny, whether it's a marriage or relational strife or a job need or something you want. And here's the next thing that we always do. Every human does it. We go to the redemption piece. And we start to turn to saviors, but not saviors like Jesus, saviors that we think will fix the brokenness from our fall. So if our identity is we want to be successful and our fall is that we don't have enough money, our savior is I'm just going to work 80 hours a week. Now something gets sacrificed when you work 80 hours a week. It's usually your family on the altar of success. Now 
I'm not knocking you if you work hard. God calls us to work, to provide for our families. But we need to know when we're turning to something to give us an identity that God has never called us to. And then restored world, what does your perfect world look like? So I'm going to open this up. And here's something that unique we're doing, and I want to introduce it at this time. Up on the screen behind me, you're going to see um, the, a Q&A. This number, you can save it in your phones. It's going to be the same number every week. You can text in questions anytime during the sermon. It's anonymous unless you put your name. I won't call your name out unless you say, this is my name, please call me out. But you can text in questions, and at the end of every sermon every week, we're going to try this out, a four-week experiment. So I know the first week might be a little patchy. We're going to try out a live Q&A where we answer your questions from the scripture based on the sermons or the topics we're talking about. And I I want you guys to save that in. So if you have your phones out, save it in, 813-444-7170. And text them in. You can start texting right now. My ringer is off. If not, Chewbacca will yell very loudly from the pulpit. Because here's what I want us to begin thinking about now as we're texting and thinking, okay, what are my questions? The first question I have for you as you're thinking of questions to ask me is what does your perfect world look like? What would be non-existent in your perfect world? If you could just list out three things and say, I'd get rid of this, this, and that, what would you get rid of first? Anybody? Sickness, cancer, mosquitoes. I'd get rid of mosquitoes, man. Anything else? So sickness, cancer, mosquitoes. One more. You get rid of money? Okay, cool. Now, how about this? Let's ask the other question. If you could have, if you could just dream three things in, you have Aladdin's genie right now. What are the three questions you're asking for? God, I want more of this. Money. (laughs) What can we get rid of? Money. What do we want? Money. It's, it's true. It's true. What else? What? Pizza. Yeah, it's because I preached about pizza. How many of you guys went and got pizza after last week's sermon? Yeah, you did. Okay, what else? One more thing. Peace. Okay. So, so here's what we're going to do every week. We're going to be hitting these rhythms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and we're going to begin unpacking who we see ourselves when we pull back the veil when we stop pretending to be Christianese people and we say, this is who I think I really am. I'm pursuing my, my significance and worth and value as a parent or, or as the best coach or as the best whatever. We can see this in daily life, but none of us, I think, have been given the, the tools or the glasses to be able to see clearly. Do you know who the person is who wants their, uh, their kid to be the next Kobe Bryant? They're the most annoying dad on the sidelines. Do you know Why? You may have just thought they're annoying. The reason why is because we're all in this same rhythm of story because it's God's rhythm that, that, that something was created, that it got broken, that something's going to save it and rescue it, and that there, there's a perfect world. Now, in, in those dads' lives, and I've been that dad from time to time, my identity is I'm going to find all of my success and approval in my son's ability to play with a ball. And, and if he plays well enough, then I will find my value and acceptance fully And my perfect world is for my son to be the next Kobe Bryant. Now, that's not my dream anymore. That that dream is something that was almost lived out in my life. But some of you do this with um, football. Some of you say, you know, um, I just love football season. And and don't get me wrong, I love football season. I mean, when I say love it, I mean I bought my mother-in-law a Steelers jersey and converted her from the Chargers to a Steelers fan just so that she could be right with Jesus, okay? This is how much I love football. Now, now if you want to see... If you want to see the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, watch an avid football fan and watch their team lose and watch their demeanor crumble because their savior for that 
three-hour period of time was a bunch of sweaty guys playing with a ball. Now, nobody's walking around saying, my Savior is a bunch of sweaty guys playing with a ball. But, but it sure feels like it when that team lets you down or when your team gets this close to the Super Bowl and then they don't quite make it. And then you mourn as you put your jersey back in the closet to say, see you next fall. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, that's not my Savior. I don't look. Now, here's what we need to know. The Savior isn't just what we look to to bring us from earth to heaven. The Savior is who we look to to give us meaning, worth, significance, and value. And Jesus is the Savior that meets all of those things. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Pay attention to this next part. And all things were created, what family? Through him and for him. So this is my prayer. As we go into Genesis, the first book, we're going to fly through a very popular story. My prayer is this. It's from Psalm 27, uh, verse 4. This, this prayer, I just want you to read it. Just let your eyes sit on this one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I have one, one thing that I want to do today and that I want to do every week for the rest of my life and especially in this sermon. I want you, I want us to long for seeing the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because when we settle in on that, so much of what is wrong in life begins to be made right. And, and this, is my, this is my fear, this is my, um, my desire, because it's all wrapped up. Because if I, if I give you a picture of Jesus and you walk out of here with a lower version of Jesus, then you're also walking out of here with a lower version of life. If I, if I lift up Jesus as high as I possibly can and he is just beaming bright at the center of your mind and heart, then you'll walk out of here and things will change. Your marriage will be different. It's the way that human psychology and affection works. We, we so often forget that church is not about how much we can strategize. We, we think that church is about strategy and doing this around. And I'm all good for strategy. I love strategy. I love thinking. I love business planning. But at the end of the day, what the people of God need is to long for Jesus, to see how beautiful he is. And that's what we're going to try to do by unpacking different angles and facets of Jesus being seen in the whole Bible. Because it's just like when you met your significant other. Do you remember when you knew that they were going to be the one? Do you, I mean, I remember it. It was like lightning. It was like lightning right to my heart because I'd known my wife Amy for a little bit, but I didn't think she was the one because she was too young. But then it was one day when she had already told some other people that she liked me, and that, that lady told me, said, hey, Amy Ivins likes you. I looked over at her, and it was like a slow-motion Pantene Pro-V commercial. I mean, it was like boom, and it was just boom, boom. I was smitten. Nobody had, to, nobody had to say, well, here's 10 steps on how to like that girl more. Nobody had to do that. Nobody had to say, well, you know, if you, really, if you really want to like her or find her attractive, here's what you need to do. No, it just happened. And it's in the same way, Jesus is beautiful to some of you. In the same way, some of you think, man, I just love him. 
no matter what happens in my life, I want to pursue him because he is more beautiful to me than the other things in life. You know how you can see if this is true of you? Wait till you go through a hard time. If something crashes into your life that wasn't expected, you'll find out real quick what your identity is. If Jesus is the most beautiful thing, you'll still see him as the most beautiful thing. And you'll make other people who don't see Jesus as beautiful and magnificent and wonderful, they'll think you're crazy. Because you'll get some terrible diagnosis, you'll go through some trauma, you'll lose something, and you'll still be joyful. And what happens is, is that in that moment, I think we can step back and say, God, there's, there's only one thing that I desire, to be in your temple, just so I can see your beauty. I mean, I, it's so tempting, well, a pastor that, that I admire, he said, you know, if I read a transcript of your prayers, would you just have this one desire? Do you fall on your face and say, God, I just want to see you? Or are there a hundred other things crowding it out? And some of you in your mind are saying, this is too simplified, Pastor. It can't be just Jesus. And I'm telling you that it's not that it can't be just Jesus. It has to be only Jesus. And there's other things in life, but if Jesus is not the most beautiful thing to you, then so much of life breaks down. In Matthew 33, uh, 13, we have the, the, the parable of the treasure and the pearl of great price. Imagine if today someone told you that you had a pearl of great price. I mean, and they said, all you have to do is go down the block to get it. Or imagine if you're this poor guy, there was a Filipino fisherman, and he had a pearl under his bed for 10 years. And he just got it appraised, found out it was worth over $100 million. He was struggling to eat, and he had a $100 million pearl that he slept on top of every night for 10 years. Now, if you knew you had the pearl of great price, if I told you, hey, here's where you can go find it guaranteed today or tomorrow morning, it's going to be at this place, you would pop up like a spring chicken even if you were a winter hen. If I said there's $100 million waiting right here, you, you would be out of bed. You'd, you'd bypass your coffee shop. If, if you ran into friends, you'd be like, I've, I'm going to get something. You'd be excited. Nobody wakes up on the route to a treasure hunt that they know the treasure's at the end and says, nah, that's okay. I'll brush my teeth a little slower today. But, but so often we do that with Christ. And, and the answer is because he hasn't become beautiful to us yet. In the prayer, if you're wondering, how do I get that, Pastor? Begin praying right now, inside, heart and head. God, Holy Spirit, show me your beauty. And when you pray, every time you pray, Go through and say, God, open my eyes, the Bible says, to behold wondrous things out of your law. Let me gaze into your beauty. Help me to delight in you, Lord. These are all scriptures. Read through the Psalms and beg God to have the heart of these men that wrote them down. Because here's where we shift gears now. I want you to see Jesus. And this is a great story. And it's a story that seems crazy. When I came into the Christian church, Y'all who are Christians before me, I became a Christian in 1998. So if you were a Christian before that, I thought y'all were crazy. Because I didn't see, I didn't behold Jesus. I didn't understand how he would restore me. And I, I read this story for the first time and I thought it was lunacy. So here it is, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. This is a story about a guy named Abraham. Anyone heard of Abraham? Okay, you guys all grew up in Sunday school. Anyone did the flannel graph with Abraham? Abraham had many 
And Mandy said, Father Abraham. Just want to see how many of you guys were indoctrinated. Love it. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife. So, so they both went, they, they went both of them together. Isaac and his father Abraham. My father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them together. Now let's stop there. I, I don't, um, when I first read that story, I thought, what kind of sadistic, cruel God is this? That was my first thought. When I read that story, at, at going into my, my, teen, my late teen years, I thought, who, why would God do this? Because I didn't understand one crucial point about the Bible. That all of the Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament, is preparing the hearts of people. All of the Bible is aiming us toward knowing who Jesus is. And it's creating a holy angst within us, knowing that we are broken from the fall, that we need a Savior, that things aren't right in this world. And when I started to ask questions about Jesus in every passage, saying, what does this have to do with Jesus? The light went on. Because it's, no matter what we might think of Bible characters, um, they were human beings. And I think sometimes, because our culture is terrible at reading in general, we forget that they were human beings. So, so just think about it in, in your own terms. I've got a seven-year-old son, Jackson. He's my firstborn son. If God told me to sacrifice my son, I would not listen. I, I would hope that I'd listen, but I don't think I would listen. I think I would go to a psychologist and say, what's going on? If I kept hearing that voice, and it sounded just like the voice from all the, the Jesus shows, I would go to another psychologist and get a second opinion. I would take medication. Not only that, um, we think that Abraham just did this nonchalantly. He had been waiting decades for a son. God had given him a son of promise through his wife, Sarah. Sarah had Isaac when she was already old. And when the Bible says old, when the Bible calls a woman old, that's how you know you're definitely old. When the Bible says Sarah, who was well advanced in years. She was beyond childbearing years, had a son, Isaac. He's growing up. Abraham, I don't think, walked to the mountain nonchalantly. He had already followed God, leaving his homeland. He had had a child from an illegitimate relationship trying to circumvent God's plan. And now he takes the child that God gave him as a promise, the child through whom Jesus' lineage will come. And he's walking up a mountain, and he's got wood for a fire and a knife. And the part that strikes me is that when he lays Isaac down, and he just puts, puts the wood on him, ready to go, 
And you're asking, how, how is this a loving God? Now, it sounds crazy. If this story doesn't hit you as crazy, you've been listening to church stuff for too long. Because to raise a knife at my son, I just don't, I don't know how that would, would work. Abraham believed that God would do what he said and give him heirs through Isaac. So Abraham raised the knife, and in that moment, God said, stop. Stop. I know that, I know that you have faith in me. And then a ram was found caught by its horns in a thicket behind them. Now, every time we read a story in the Bible, we've got to ask this crucial question. This year, as you begin reading stories in the Bible, ask this question. How does this remind me of the story of Jesus? Because something beautiful happened for you and for me. There, there, there is a father whose son went to be sacrificed, but was actually sacrificed. There, there was a father, there is a father, who in the realm of our history said, my son will be sacrificed and the knife will not be withheld. This is what the story is pointing us toward. That the, the destiny of the person who would redeem all of these things is going to have these stories, painting shadows, painting pictures, getting us ready so that when Jesus dies on the cross, we say, there was a father who once was about to give up his son for God's promises, but God told him no, and then God provided another way. For you and I, this, this is where we need to start. We've been trying to put our own sacrifices on the altar of our lives to make our lives complete and full, to find satisfaction. And we think that if we construct our altar and we sacrifice hard work, we sacrifice do's and don'ts, we put religion, if we do these things right, then God will finally accept us, that those around us will embrace us. I need you to hear crystal clear that, that slavery, if you want to be enslaved in your life, Keep pressing on to believing that, that your do's and your don'ts and how good you behave is what you need to be right with God. If you want to keep staying in this mode of slavery, keep thinking that if you work just a little bit harder, you'll finally get the peace that you've wanted. If you do work a little bit harder, you might get some peace. I, I feel like I work hard. I had some peace. I went and had a day off with my wife. We went to Honeymoon Island. That's where I contracted the sewage voice. Thank you, peace. If you think that your peace is going to be if you can just raise your kids to love God and then you'll find satisfaction, be weary. Kids run, run, run from Jesus when their parents tried to constrict them into religion. Because here's, here's the, the big news story. We have a creation identity. We're made in the image of God. Things are broken from the fall. There is one redeemer. May you find him beautiful today. May you realize that all the sacrifices you're trying to make won't measure up to the one that God already made for you. Because a perfect world is coming when we will see his beauty eye to face. And in that moment, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Now people have asked, Pastor Ryan, can you do an evangelism class? Can you do an apologetics class? Can you do a class on this theology or that theology? And I love classes. I'm a, I'm a nerd to my core. 
But let me ask you this weird question. Um, how many of you guys are avid fans of something? Just anything, not sports, like a movie, band. Okay, so the rest of you guys, you need emotions. Okay. When you're an avid fan of something, what do you tend to do when that something is around you? You get excited. You tell people about it. So, like, let's say um, your favorite band's coming to town. If your favorite band's coming to town, you usually buy some tickets, invite some friends. You're pumped up about it. If your football team wins, what do you do? What's the first thing you do if you're on social media? You start blasting the team they beat. My team plays Damon's team tomorrow night. You better believe that when that game's over, he's going to get a right on his Facebook wall. It's going to be a picture of me with two Steelers towels, and I'm going to hold him up in a V for victory because we're going to have one. That's a prophecy. Take it to the bank. That's pretty arrogant. I don't, don't take it to the bank because the Old Testament says stolen false prophets. Okay. Now, when we're a fan of something, when we see something is valuable, we evangelize. Evangel, evangelism is telling the good news of a thing. We want to tell people about what we love. So the reason why we're going to be lifting up Jesus is because I, then I don't need to teach you how to do evangelism. I didn't need to tell anybody how to tell their friends about Lord of the Rings when that movie came out. I didn't need to. For those of you who were around the first time Star Wars came out, you didn't need to tell anybody, hey, 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 um, we should be excited about Star Wars. You didn't go see it with your three friends and say, okay, we saw Star Wars, you guys. Let's get excited. Let's make a three-step plan on how to tell people about Star Wars. You just walked out and said, Star Wars was, it was awesome. Lord of the Rings was amazing. Changed my life. You, you just do it, and you love it. It's the same way with, with, your, with your spouse. If you're growing with your spouse, if you meet them and you had that moment, you remember the moment where you see them, you know they're into you, all of a sudden you're into them, the fireworks start popping off, the Pantene Pro-V, okay, you got that? Now, you want to know what makes marriage better? When husbands, if your wife is the most beautiful woman to you, if you press into saying, like, what's your type? If you ask me, what's my type? My type is five, eight and a half, give or take, blonde hair, dark brown eyes, and I, I can't say the rest. It's not appropriate for the pulpit. But that's my type. Name, Amy, Joy, Tyrona, maiden name, Ivans. That's my type. So, so if you say, well, hey, hey, is this person beautiful? Let me see how she compares to my type. Nope. Is this person beautiful? Nope. Now, I am a guy, so there are some things right? But I, I always tell my wife, you're my number one. There may be a celebrity number two, but they're way, way, way down on that list. Way, like they don't exist, baby. You're my number one, and I only can count to one. Now, do we do that with God? Do we do that with the person who is the most beautiful being of all creation? Do we press into him in such a way where we say, I want to see Jesus. I want to know Jesus. My only prayer is that I could be in his temple, that I could bang on his door, that I could grab the hem of his robe. Because those stories are the ones that will light us up. Those stories are the ones that will finally get us to the point where all we need is to be there in front of God and we need nothing else. Abraham can you imagine, on the scale of size of relief, like, I think he would have won. When your knife is at your son, and God says, stop! Abraham was probably holding his breath, sweating profusely, his kid with tears, filling his eyes, screaming, worried, concerned. I mean, I, as a dad, that would have been my mega hyper sigh. Oh! That was close. 
God next time, like just two seconds earlier. But, but God wanted Abraham to know, like, this is what it's going to cost him. But he's not going to withhold the sacrifice. And then the thing that compels us to love Jesus in this story is this. It's for you. It's for you. God loves you so much that he would go through with the sacrifice, that he would make a way, not so that you could be a, a religious recipient, not, not just so that you could be someone who is, who is liked by God. God did this because he wanted to call you son and daughter. He wants to say to you, I love you. If you think you've outsinned what God has paid for, your thinking is broken. There's nothing that you could do that would push God away if you're in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, there's nothing outside of the realm of forgiveness. Nothing. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've gone. God didn't hold back the knife. And he didn't direct it toward you or me. So when we sin, it's not a matter of putting ourselves in a penalty box and beating ourselves up. It's a matter of turning and beholding, saying, Jesus, you are enough. Every time we sin, some, you may think like, well, if I just sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, is that like God, is God like a forgiveness ATM? I have two things to say. One is, the more you behold Jesus, the less I think you'll be inclined to do sin. Number two is, yes, God can dole out more forgiveness than you can sin. And that may make some of you squirm. If you grew up in the church, you may be thinking, ooh, wait, he can just keep on forgiving more than you know. He forgave you and me. You're still breathing right now. I think that's God's forgiveness. I'm talking to people about Jesus. I think that's God's grace and forgiveness. So this is the story in Genesis. I would encourage you, if, you're, if you've never read the Bible, pick up Genesis because there's, there's Adam and Eve. Where, where there's the heel going to crush the serpent. There's a story of Noah where through one person God saves humanity. There's the story of Abraham, which is a lot more pointers to Jesus than just that. There's the story of Joseph who goes into a pit and is brought up to the second in power. I mean, there's so many be beautiful stories that point to Jesus in Genesis. Next week, we're going to be in Exodus. Next week is the prince of Egypt, unless you're over the age of 40. Then next week is the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I love it when you laugh, brother. Okay, so let's pray. And then we're going to bring in the offering. Father, I thank you. I thank you that Jesus is so glorious and beautiful and magnificent. And I thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. I pray that we would leave here wanting him more. That the one thing that we would desire as a chapel family would be to come into your temple just to stare at you. I pray that people in this room, God, right now, who this sermon is just blown over their heads. It doesn't make sense. They don't understand seeing God is beautiful. I pray. I pray in the name of Jesus. I pray that your spirit would open their eyes so that they could see that, that Jesus is more valuable, more worthy than every other thing we're trying to put in his place to find satisfaction. God, we need, we need you to burn deep at the center. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite the host forward. Are you guys ready to clap? Get your clapping hands out. 
Okay, ready? Oh, yeah, let's clap. I didn't, yeah, do that. We could clap. Because we're about to worship God with offering, but I also have some good news that's going to make you clap again. I told myself when I came on staff, I, when I came on, I inherited about $10,000 in, in credit card debt that the church had accumulated, and I have this motto in my life. It's pretty simple. It's called debt is dumb. So um, I said, I don't want to buy anything. I don't want to do anything until that credit card is paid off. We made a big push last fall, and in T-minus three days, the credit card is going to be totally paid off. Uh, get that. And now that the credit card's paid off, here's the next thing we're doing. Uh, if you dropped off a kid today, you got a free smoothie card, right? You can go get a free kid smoothie over at the smoothie shop. If you don't have one of these and you, uh, and you want to get a free smoothie, you have to bring a child with you. You can borrow one of mine if you want. Uh, you can bring them over there, buy an adult smoothie. But here's the deal. Um, the guy that owns a smoothie shop is Frank and Linda's son. And he's going to give us a percentage back of all the receipts. So you, go, you buy smoothies, you save your receipts, you bring them in. We're just going to have a big old bucket for receipts. And he's going to give us a percentage of money, and it's going to go toward the next thing we're building. Since we paid off the credit card, I want to build like a commercial, big, nasty playground that the kids will love and break bones on. So we're going to build. Yeah, absolutely. You can clap for that, too. I'm going to keep on clapping. I just like clapping today. Because, because when we have 78 kids back there, it's ludicrous speed. If you've seen Spaceballs, it's that fast back there. It's 78 kids. They're bouncing off each other like ping pong balls. So we're going to build a big old fenced-in area so we can throw some kids outside, burn out their energy. That way teachers can actually talk without the kids chattering like Red Bull chipmunks, okay? So we're going to do that. We're going to have details about that coming out. But go buy smoothies, save your receipts. And here's the last thing that I'm going to do before we bring in the offering. Um, thank you for your generosity. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. We appreciate it. But it's not, it's not just your offering to us. It's your offering for us. And one of the things I'm going to ask all of us to begin doing is this. It's very simple. I want you to pray. No, nope, I don't even want you to pray, actually. No, nope, don't even pray about this. I want you to bring food to start building a food pantry for the chapel. I don't want you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll keep on. I'm, I'm down for this because there's enough times now where I'm, I'm running into people who need food, and we have zero space here, you guys. This building was not built to house a church for as long as it has, so every, every door you see is packed full of stuff. So I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. I'm trying to figure out how to mobilize food from point A to point B. It might be mean buying, buying a trailer, but the church is here to lift up Jesus, to give food and water and clothing to people that need it, to care for the widows and the orphans. Simple view. I'm not, we're not going to add a bunch to that. We don't need to throw a, a million events. We don't need to do a billion things. We're going to lift up Jesus, feed people. Super easy. And then we're going to make our kids play so that we can have some peace when we're trying to teach them about Jesus. Okay? So, so offering, let me bless you. You'll hand it out, and we'll see if I got any questions. Uh, God, bless this offering. I thank you for the generosity of the Chapel family. God, may we as a family take Lithia and Riverview and Brandon and Valrico, we, may we as a family take the good news of Jesus to these cities. May we lift up the name of Jesus. May we see hungry people fed and thirsty people with water. May we be obedient to loving you and pursuing you so that our daily prayer is, God, all I want is more of you because today has been a good day. Thank you for making us generous. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, Amen. So it's the first time. Here we go. Okay, so here we have a heretic. So when the Steelers lose tomorrow night, does that mean we get to stone you next Sunday as a false prophet? No, it doesn't. I've been doing P90X so I could duck. 
Okay, never mind. Here we go. More serious question. How do you think Isaac told that story? Here's how I think Isaac told that story. Kids are never going to believe what your granddad did. (laughs) You will never believe what your granddad did. Now you have to remember that Isaac is in this lineage where we get to read on about his story and, and what happened to him. He had his own crazy lives with wives. So, so all of these people's stories, it's good to think about that, though. Every time you're watching a movie, a show, I would encourage you guys to realize that every show, every movie, every book you read, it's telling you a sermon. Even if you don't think of it as a sermon, Seinfeld is our 20-minute sermons, and they're teaching you worldviews. And when we come to the Bible, we should start to try to see the Bible for the life that it was, not painted as some historical stained glass thing that's unrelatable to life. So that's what I would do. I do that kind of stuff all the time. Like, how did this person feel? How did that person feel? What did it smell like? I encourage you guys to do that. So in this busy world of work, school, soccer, band, family, how can we truly determine if Jesus has been set aside and we are putting something else in his place? Here's how you can determine it. What do you talk about the most? Spend your money on the most? Think about the most? Now, it doesn't make us these Jesus regurgitating automatons. But if you want to know if Jesus is the center, just ask yourself, okay, on my commute, let me rethink yesterday's commute. What did I think about most? How much Jesus is amazing for all of the things he's given me, for the oxygen and the trees and the car and the wife and the kids? Or did I think about how much I wanted to kill that person, that person, that person, that person? So you, then you redeem your commute. You say, okay, that commute was not given to Jesus. I felt like my anger would be the redeeming piece that would make that commute okay, but anger never does anything on a commute. Or if it's with family, you know, there's a a very popular ministry called Focus on the Family. I used to joke around and tell people, hey, I love Focus on the Family, just don't focus too much because that's idolatry. Because we we see that, especially in a community like Fishhawk. What is key in Fishhawk? I mean, how how do they get people in here? We're a great place for families. You can come play in the splash pad. Your kids won't drown because it's just a pad. You can go play in the pool. It, it's overchlorinated, so you won't get sewage disease. It, it's a place for families. I get it, because we draw families here at the chapel as well. But, but if family is the end goal, man, talk to one parent who's had one kid walk away from the faith. You'll see what happens oftentimes when someone lifted up a child as their satisfaction and savior when their child walks away in their teens and 20s. You'll see pain. Now, there's probably still pain when Jesus is the center, but, but when the child becomes the savior, when your worth and value is determined by who they are and what they do, if they let you down, then it will crush you. Same with your spouse. If your spouse, if you put the expectations on your spouse to be your savior and they let you down, it will crush you. So, so I would encourage you to be asking those questions. And the core question is, when things go bad and this, these areas of my life, am I turning to Jesus? And when things are really, really good, am I thankful to Jesus? Is he still supreme above? I had a really good conversation. I'll close with this. The rest of the questions I'll answer on a blog post this week. I'll just list them all out and, and answer them on a blog post. We'll post it on the chapel website. Uh, one, one of the a, a worshiper, singer, said, I don't know if I can sing this song, I Surrender All, because I don't know if I'd give Jesus my all. And it was such an honest and gritty song and an honest and gritty remark about the song. And I think that's what God is looking for. 
Actually, I don't think I know that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for those of us to say, I've got all the right answers, God. My theology's all in order. I've done everything you wanted me to do today. He's looking for somebody that's banging at the door and says, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. I need something else. Because then when we are weak, he is strong. When, when we are finding ourselves in times of trouble, his grace is sufficient for us. So like I said, um, we'll, we'll experiment with this, but it's 1110. I want to honor your time. Uh, like I said, I will post uh, a link to the blog uh, in the weekly email. If you're not on the weekly email list, get with guest services, leave your email back there, or fill out one of the connection cards and just give it to me on your way out. If they're in the chairs in front of you and on the back table, I'll get you on the email list. We'll answer the rest of the questions in a blog, and I'll have more scripture involved in those answers as well.